0: Cracking the sound barrier in the X-1 marked another milestone in aviation history. The time, October 14, 1947. The place, Air Force Flight Test Center at Murak, California. The pilot, Captain Chuck Yeager. With all four rockets firing, Yeager climbs to 56,000 feet in less than two minutes. And he does it, the first human to crack the sound barrier.
1: Captain Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier on October 14th, 1947, where people on the ground heard a sonic boom for the first time. Since then, technology has allowed aircraft to go faster and faster, but there's still one barrier that prevents the public from flying faster than the speed of sound over land. Sonic booms are still too loud and too disruptive. We began this podcast series with the SR-71, the fastest manned aircraft. And we're closing our first season of Inside Skunkworks with an aircraft demonstrator that has the potential to change the accessibility of supersonic flight.
0: There's two ways that you actually hear the sonic boom. One is the actual noise that you hear when you're outside.
2: Uh, usually it's like a double crack. So it's like a boom, boom
0: and then when you're inside of a building, you actually don't hear the sonic boom. What you hear is the windows rattling or the door shaking or what appears to be maybe the building moving.
2: Some sonic booms have even been known to break windows so they can be fairly destructive as well.
1: This is Peter Isofitis and Craig Nickel. Peter is the program manager for the low boom flight demonstrator on the Lockheed Martin side of this project and Craig is the program manager on the NASA side of this project.
2: NASA has been working with our industry partners for many years, actually decades, to refine and perfect the technologies that we're working on in Low Boom Flight Demonstrator. And the main reason is that we're trying to enable a a commercial capability to do overland supersonic flight for commercial applications. This project is really the culmination of many decades of research and, and work in this area. And it's very important because right now, it's not allowed or it's not legal to go ahead and fly overland commercial supersonic flights due to the uh, sonic booms.
1: So basically, the low-boom flight demonstrator is an X-Plane Skunkworks is developing for NASA. The aircraft is a single-seat demonstrator that will fly over populated areas, produce a low, non-disruptive sonic boom so that NASA can collect community response data this data will be used to overturn current regulations that ban supersonic flight over land. Commercial supersonic flight isn't a new thing. Industry attempted commercial supersonic flight ever since Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. For example, the Concorde.
0: When the Concorde came to be, it was touted hey, this is how we're always going to fly. Uh, until the unintended consequences of the noise uh, essentially put uh, the brakes on that, not allowing that airplane to essentially fly, but just to very specific cities around the world and limiting its potential to really service all but just a very small percentage of the population. There was only very few that could actually afford to fly on the Concorde. So the, the majority of the population really never got to experience what it means to fly from... LA to Tokyo, for instance, in half the time it takes today.
1: So NASA decided to take on the problem.
2: We started with a lot of concept studies, a lot of requirements analysis. Uh, NASA generally does not build these types of aircraft in-house. You know, we use industry's capabilities. It's more efficient that way. Industry has that expertise that we need. And then NASA brings to the table the technologies, the connections to the regulators, the requirements. We had a, a competition for this next phase, which is really the big one. It's the detailed design, the building, and the testing of the demonstrator. And so uh, Lockheed competed for that and the Skunk Works was successful. So we're really excited about this partnership moving forward. And we have a lot of confidence that we've got the right team in place here between NASA and the Skunk Works to be successful.
0: Most of the advances that have occurred in aviation have been in the propulsion systems, not as much in the aircraft design itself. Although some of the later models are incorporating that, the bulk of the efficiency still comes from the actual propulsion system. The initial recognition that shaping of an airplane actually can affect the sound of the noise on the ground occurred quite a while back, many decades ago actually, but it wasn't until recently that we were able to demonstrate that we can actually develop a design and actually predict the noise of that design accurately enough to move forward with a full-scale demonstrator. This is a technology demonstrator. It's an X-plane. Its sole purpose is to generate a noise at the established level that NASA has deemed the level that will likely be acceptable to the general public. So this is, in essence, a noise generator. That's its sole purpose. It is going to enable regulation change once consumer response data is collected from major population centers that gauges millions of people to the acceptability of the new noise level and the fact that we will have been able to demonstrate we can design an airplane at that low noise level. So the actual pressure waves that create the sonic boom start at the point where you reach mach one that's the point where the actual sonic boom occurs and it stops once you stop going mach one when you get less than that essentially what happens at that point when you reach that mach one level or greater is when those molecules cannot move out of the way fast enough as the airplane is moving creating those pressure waves that ultimately The thing that's a little bit of a misconception with sonic boom is some people think that sonic boom is created when the airplane reaches supersonic speed and that's it. But it's more similar to a ship or a a boat moving through the water. It literally carries that pressure wave the entire time it's flying. So depending on where you're positioned is what will dictate when you will hear that sound. So when the airplane flies over you, that is the point where it's going to be the loudest. As an airplane, a supersonic airplane is flying through the atmosphere, we call it a carpet width, meaning that that sound, that supersonic sound, would be heard up to 35 to 45 miles across the ground, directly below it and then 20 to 25 miles in each direction. Beyond that, the actual sound bounces off the atmosphere and then comes up, so you you won't hear it 50 miles away on either side of the airplane. Once you're in that range, it's always going to happen. It's physics. The only thing you can do is design the airplane so you can keep those pressure waves separated enough to where you're creating more of a sine wave instead of that traditional N wave. A sine wave looks like an, an S and when you look at it on a graph. And the N wave looks literally like an N. It's got a very sharp increase when you hear that sonic boom, and then it it goes sharply to the other side, just like an end does coming down as the airplane vacates that area, causing the second bar of that pressure wave. It's very long and pointy, and that's part of the reason we're able to separate those shocks, because we need that extra length Uh, of the airplane so we can actually design those separation of those pressure waves and therefore any supersonic airplane that's going to create a low sonic boom is going to be long and skinny for the most part. The rest of it has to do with uh, designing the aircraft so that all the shocks coming off the other parts of the airplane, everything has to be considered and also has to do with the trimming of the airplane, how we actually fly it and the fact that we are going to need the uh, onboard computer of the aircraft to actually fly the airplane because it's a very delicate balance between achieving the desired sound effect versus uh, booming people in a manner that's going to create that very loud sonic boom. The
3: idea is to make the shock increase very smooth across the length of the airplane. It's one of the reasons it's shaped the way it is, is, why the airplane has such a long nose and why it is area ruled in a way that makes the incremental increase in shock as you go down the body of the airplane relatively small, very small steps instead of a big step on a conventionally designed uh, supersonic airplane.
1: This is chief test pilot of the Low Boom flight demonstrator, Dan Canan.
3: So the test pilot is very much involved from the beginning in the actual design of the airplane. We're working already, i have already started drafting a flight manual for that and I'll be working that in conjunction with the NASA pilots. The airplane itself is, is very easy to fly and for all of us. Um, It's not about uh, learning to fly, and the simulator is not about learning to fly the airplane. It's really the unique systems on the airplane and our response when one of them fails, and, and really the ergonomics of what the switches do so we're not fumbling around, and we can do that very efficiently. And when you've spent two years working specifically with that airplane, it has the potential to be the most comfortable you've ever been in an airplane because you haven't inherited the design from somebody else. You've been in, intimately involved with the decisions on the pilot vehicle interface and the displays and the, 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 the hands-on-throttle-and-stick uh, selection and things like that. So, I anticipate this to probably be one of the most comfortable airplanes I've ever flown in
0: for that reason. So, on the Concorde, they droop the nose, to be able to land and see where they're going and on a supersonic airplane that's designed not to create that loud noise, we don't have that. We actually don't have any natural vision out of the front of this airplane. It's very pointy and a windshield, just like on a car, has an angle that is causing a lot of drag, if you will. The windshield on the airplane is essentially the exact same thing, therefore you can't have a traditional windshield or canopy uh, as you would on a normal airplane, similar of size. So what we have is an enhanced external vision system that is being developed by NASA that will put synthetic vision in the cockpit that will allow the pilot to see as they're flying up and away. There's actually a few different cameras on the airplane. The one is for looking up and away, which is the external vision systems, as I said. And there's two other cameras called four vision systems that are on the bottom that are attached to the nose landing gear, and those are for landing. The difference between those two is really the resolution required. The external vision system is looking really far away to be able to see objects, other air, other aircraft as they're flying out. The other cameras underneath the airplane, since they're only required for landing, they don't need that high resolution. Those are commercially available systems. In this system, this external vision system is one that is not certified, but it is a system that NASA is developing for this particular application, but it's not a safety-critical item. The pilots don't actually need this system to operate the aircraft because this airplane is flying at altitudes that they are not going to run into other traffic. The airplane is flying at 55,000 feet and as they're climbing out from from the airport all the way up to that altitude, the intent is to clear the path of the aircraft during the flight test, uh, but if necessary they also have Uh, a plan to use a chase plane to make sure that there's uh, nothing out in front of them. So the XVS, although great system, uh, it's not a critical safety item for the airplane and doesn't actually have to uh, be available for the pilot to operate safely. I believe that all the configurations will probably not have natural vision to achieve the noise level that's going to be required to keep the sound to an acceptable level. So I do believe the system that NASA is developing will ultimately be certified at some point and could very potentially be this system that many commercial products will use as they come to market. You can see out the side so you have peripheral vision, but it is probably a little bit different than most pilots are used to. But we have a simulator that all our pilots have been practicing on, it seems very... I won't say easy, but it must be easy because I've actually been able to land the airplane in the simulator and I'm not a pilot, so overall these test pilots are obviously very skilled and and have no problem landing the airplane with synthetic vision.
3: Eyeballs have evolved to see in a certain way, but it doesn't mean that that is the best information available. We could, with multiple different cameras looking at different parts of the spectra, provide information to the pilot that's far superior to his own eyes, to the point where pilots will probably be more comfortable at some point with these synthetic displays, some that can do image enhancement and image analysis to find other airplanes in this display that they wouldn't pick up with their own eyes. So I think this is an opportunity actually to augment human biology with a with a much better visual system.
0: Uh, one of the criteria and guidance that we provided to our designers early on was We want to achieve NASA's requirements in a manner that's most affordable because there's not an unlimited amount of funding available for this project. And one of the ways that we do that in typical Skunk Works fashion is uh, we don't want to go reinvent the wheel. If somebody has already done that work and has already developed something that we can use, that's what we're going to go do. So the only thing new about this airplane is the shape. Most of the components are either existing off the shelf or repurposed from other aircraft. The propulsion system is a General Electric 414-100 engine, which the 414 engine is used on the F-18 and also used on the Swedish Gripen. So that is an engine that exists commercially off the shelf. Some of the other major components are repurposed from other aircraft. The landing gear is from an F-16 Block 25. The canopy is repurposed from the backseat of a T-38. Many of the other subsystems such as actuators, anything to do with fire control or auxiliary power, electrical systems, pneumatic systems, all those are repurposed from other aircraft. The only thing that's unique, developed for this airplane is the lighting system, since we have a very slender looking airplane, but these are very low value, low risk type items. Regarding what it actually sounds like, the Concorde made a a noise level at 105 PLDB. Our current design that NASA has established for this technology demonstrator is at 75 PLDb, an order of magnitude less. Uh, If you've ever heard a traditional supersonic boom, very disturbing, very annoying, and if you heard it more than a couple times a day, you could see why there was a lot of complaints, essentially disrupting them in a manner that just wasn't acceptable. The new sound level at 75 PL to be if that turns out to be the sound level that is the recommended level that a NASA established as being the one that will ultimately be adopted by the FAA, that will sound more like NASA likes to use supersonic heartbeat or supersonic thump as a characterization.
2: It's more like distant thunder on the horizon. It's just a kind of a low rumble over the horizon. And if you're listening for it, you can hear it. But if you are distracted or listening to music or talking to somebody, you may not even hear it. Of course, what we think is that based on a lot of uh, subject testing, you know, we've had uh, simulated boom rooms. We've had people come in and be subjected to these booms, uh, loud booms, quiet booms, soft booms, and a lot of things in between. And over the years, we've kind of developed targets. And so we're pretty confident that if we can build a design to hit these targets, then our data will look good in terms of the ability to change these regulations.
0: What we've done so far on the program is go through a preliminary design where we've actually developed, took a concept design and matured it to a preliminary design, meaning that we've now selected all the subsystems and are now moving into maturing that further to the critical design, which will essentially create all the details of that airplane. We've done a lot of design trades to make sure that we're comfortable with the design that we have and that there is little to no risk of that design changing from now going forward. We've done extensive low speed and high speed wind tunnel testing. We've done inlet performance testing. So there's been a lot of effort made up front to make sure we have the right configuration to achieve the results that have been established by NASA. From here on out, a lot of the work that is going to go on is really putting the details in the design that we already have, actually building uh, everything that we have designed. And I'll say this is something that at at the Skunk Works we're very familiar with. We know how to build airplanes. We know how to do X planes. So we're in an area now that I'll say the technical hurdles of this project are really behind us as opposed to ahead of us. Uh, Now we just need to get on with building this airplane and providing it to NASA so we can all fly on a commercial supersonic airplane.
2: So our target for first flight is in the summer of 2021. Just started the contract. We awarded it in early April. And so we're working with the folks at the Skunk Works closely right now. We had a kickoff meeting. We're going to a design review this summer. successful we're going to start some long lead items manufacturing and finish the design the next full design review at the end of 19 and then in 2020 is really the final integration assembly and ground testing and that leads us into 2021 where we want to shoot for that first flight
3: i've flown about 80 different types of airplanes so there have been lots of first flights for me personally okay what What's unusual here, of course, and it's a great privilege to fly a flight that's the first for the airplane. The thing that I've found over the years in flight tests that I've found fascinating is the types of tests that we most typically consider to be extremely high risk seem to be such eminently risky that that we bring all of our resources and best people to bear on it and we practice until we're bored with it. And we actually mitigate that risk so much that the test itself becomes boring, which is a good thing. This is what we want to do. Contrary to the public perception, test pilots are actually extremely risk averse. And what we really want to do is make every test as mundane and boring as possible, uh, odd as that sounds. The ones that worry me, the things that worry me, actually are the unknowns. And it's like we've always said, it's not the things that you you know that'll hurt you. It's the things that you don't know about, or the things that you believe are true that are wrong, that actually wind up uh, biting you in the end. So, with low boom, some of the things that are that that people are concerned about are the fact that we have no forward field of view, we have no windshield in the airplane, so uh, we we are operating through synthetic displays, cameras essentially, or the fact that uh, the airplane, because of the configuration, has a very low angle uh, tail strike potential. If we if we land the airplane and rotate more than about nine degrees, we have a risk of actually hitting parts of the airplane on the runway. But those are such clear issues for us that I feel we've mitigated those already in our design and our intended flight profile. We'll be able to fly this airplane actually with no displays at all. I think we have enough windows and we can bring chase in into the problem. We can use synthetic electronic displays. We can use a landing safety officer to talk us down, etc. So that's an example of how we mitigate things that appear to be risky down to nothing. The real risks are going to be things that are much more mundane than that. What if my mic goes out? Are we going to be able to provide air in a properly conditioned state through our new inlet? Um, Are we going to be able to provide uninterrupted fuel uh, to the engine? But even these things, really in a sense, they're not experiencing a first flight as the first time they've ever been in that environment. We will have ground tested and checked out systems on the ground to the extent that really from the airplane's perspective, there should be nothing new. The airframe has been to a wind tunnel, so we know what all of the aerodynamic forces are on the airplane, the hydraulic system has been run at its most stressing condition on the ground, the electrical system. So when the airplane gets airborne, while it'll be a first for me, it should not be a first for any component on the airplane. Now, does that mean nothing can go wrong? Not really. I mean, nature can be very diabolical, but she's going to have to be very diabolical to find the hole in our preparation that uh, that she can sneak through. On the internet, you see photos of this visible shock wave around the airplane. Generally, that's when the humidity conditions around the airplane are such to actually make the the shock visible. It's not normally in dry air, like around here in a desert, it's not normally visible. There are special light conditions, though, that can be created that do make them visible. It's a thing called Schlieren photography that's done, where we, have, we backlight the air around the airplane it's just like the effect that you see when you put a pencil at an angle in a in a cup of water where you see this sudden jog in the shape of the pencil because of the the density change of the medium that the light is going through so using those techniques uh, nasa has done a lot of work using the sun as the background and a chase airplane or ground camera shooting the airplane as it goes through the sun and you can see this uh, make this shockwave visible and of course that's going to be one of the goals in this this program also to get pressure measurements using a a test airplane an F-15 that's specially instrumented to probe the environment right around the airplane to see that the pressure distribution matches up with prediction, and also to try to do uh, Schlieren photography against the sun so we can visualize the shock waves around this airplane compared to a conventional supersonic jet.
1: We asked Dan what it would be like for someone to fly at supersonic speeds for the first time.
3: Well, it has been a a relatively small group of people, mostly military. And uh, we're hoping, of course, to change that and make it commonplace. I think people are going to be disappointed, <laughs> okay? I think they to. You know, first of all, unless we advertise the number like they did on Concord, where they actually put the number up in the passenger department so people could see, from a pilot or passenger perspective, you, you would never know it happened. It's, it is only a number on a gauge. Now, outside the airplane has been historically a different thing. It's a very loud bang for people on the ground, conventional supersonic aircraft, and we'll try to change that also to make that a non-event.
2: once that first flight happens, there'll be this phase we call envelope expansion. So we need to actually prove that the aircraft is safe to fly through what we call its envelope, which is its altitude and speed capabilities. So we kind of start out with a first flight that's fairly low and fairly slow. And then the next flight, we go a little higher and faster and a little bit more. And we keep adding on incrementally until we've proven out the whole envelope, which is a high supersonic uh, speed of Mach 1.4 and high altitude, above 50,000 feet. And so once that process is finished, then we go into what we call acoustic validation, where we start measuring the booms off of the aircraft. Basically make sure that these sonic booms it's generating are what we expect. Moving into the next phase, which will be the community response testing in the 2023 timeframe. And the community response testing is really the most exciting part of this and the whole reason we're doing it and that's the part where we fly the aircraft over the public and we actually gather data through a survey and that's really the database we're talking about. So there's a lot of steps to go, but the ultimate product of this is really a database of this community response and that database is what we need to affect the regulatory change. So first flight is important, but first flight's only the very first step. The role of NASA in general, the role of the government here is to gather that data do it in a way that's acceptable to the regulators and, uh, and then support this change. Uh, once that's finished, NASA is not going to go ahead and build airplanes and sell airplanes or operate airplanes. Of course, that would just open the door for industry then to step through and take advantage of this system. And this is not an abnormal thing. The government has done this in many different areas. When we started air service in the very first place, the government supported it through the air service, the air mail, railroads, similar and on and on. So it's an inherently government function to do this type of work. And once we're done, then we step away and we've opened the door for industry and the public to benefit. There are companies I know right now working on future commercial supersonic transports that are gonna be limited to over water, but that is only a little bit of the picture. If we can go over land, that kind of completes the whole picture and really enables the market.
0: The actual rule change could happen within the next five, seven, eight years, and we could actually start building a commercial product prior to the actual rule change and be ready for that when it happens to have that capability available to the consumer. It just feels good to go faster, whether you're on a bike or in a car or you're running, and we measure ourselves by time, whether it's a horse, a car, a motorcycle, Airplanes that we have air races. So there's always been this fascination of going fast. So this is just the next step in allowing not only those few folks that are competing to go fast, but allowing the general public to also participate in this capability.
1: This was the last episode of season 1 of Inside Skunkworks. Write us at insideskunkworks.lm at lmco.com and tell us what you want us to cover in season 2.